episode 380, Seven Big Reasons Medicare Drug Price Negotiation Actually Happened This Time Around. What Changed? Today, I speak with Mark Miller. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. It's been said that healthcare in this country will not be transformed because of some incremental government policy. Nor will this industry transform because of some tech company who techs the crap out of healthcare. It's been said that the only way the healthcare industry in this country is going to fundamentally change is vis a vis a seismic shift in the way Americans view the healthcare industry, in their understanding of what is going on and the extent to which it directly impacts lives. You and I, all of us, have heard pundits say every year for a decade, at least, that this revolution is a coming and that this year, no mas. Americans cannot afford to pay any more in premiums or out of pocket. We have reached the brink. And year after year, we've discovered that, in fact, Americans, as patients, members, and taxpayers, can pay more and are willing to do so. Well, maybe, right now, we are actually cresting the top. The Medicare can now negotiate drug prices legislation. Maybe it's a bit of a watershed moment here. Today, I'm talking with Mark Miller, EVP of Healthcare at Arnold Ventures, and this is what we talk about today. The why now. The why all of a sudden, after years of talking and griping and nothing happening, how right now, what constellation of factors transpired that enabled Medicare drug price negotiation to become law? You need to listen to the show to get the context, but here's the seven main reasons by my counting that Mark Miller talks about today. Number one, the sensitivity of the public to just healthcare costs in general, pharma being an easy to spot component of those healthcare costs. Two, sensitivity of policymakers to pharma's R&D claims and non-industry sponsored information coming out that tempers some of those research and development claims that pharma has been making. Number three, Sensitivity that innovation isn't a homogenous broad stroke when it comes to new drugs. There's a difference between breakthrough innovations versus Me Too type drugs. Consider some new combination drug that's, I don't know, two generics and costs two grand a month. There's eyes on that kind of stuff. And if pharma's reputation travels in an industry-wide block, this compounds our number three point here. Number four. Sensitivity of innovation in the future versus people getting access right now to today's innovations. If too many people, i.e. voters, can't get access to today's meds, it's a reach to expect them to worry too much about their future selves, where in all likelihood they are thinking that they still wouldn't have access to the drugs. Number five, the landscape shifted, but pharma talking points did not, and the result was labeled tone deaf by some. Number six, voters wanted aggressive actions as a result of the aforementioned constellation of factors, and a majority of Congress people responded and either voted yes or didn't protest overly hard, even if they didn't. Number seven, patient voices became more sophisticated. While they still might have issues with PBMs and or insurance carriers, there's a growing perception that the story here is more nuanced and pharma is in that mix. This is what we talk about today. The why now, exactly and specifically. 
so thrilled to have had this conversation with Mark Miller, who has had and continues to have such a storied career. In brief, Mark Miller ran MedPAC for 15 years. That's a big deal. He also has held other roles at CMS and the Urban Institute. Now Mark is at Arnold Ventures, as Afer mentioned, which is a philanthropic organization. He oversees Arnold's work in healthcare. One last thing. The legislation that just passed also includes a few other parts that impacts drugs. A big one is limiting the catastrophic Medicare Part D out-of-pockets to beneficiaries to two grand. And then there's also an inflation rebate. So there's a rebate back to Medicare if pharma raises its prices faster than the inflation rate. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Mark Miller, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you for having me. Why did this happen now? Medicare now being able to negotiate on drug pricing. Obviously, something has changed. I think I might start here, even before you get to drugs per se. The sensitivity of the public to healthcare costs in general has been increasing. 100 million people carrying medical debt. And I know we're outside of Medicare, you know, for the moment, but the cost of em- employees' premiums, deductibles, and co-payments. When you poll people about just their general concerns, healthcare usually finds its way into the top two or three concerns. And so I think there's been a general concern with healthcare, and drugs are highly visible. A lot of people take drugs or know someone who takes drugs. And there's a lot of press around what the drug companies have been doing, which I also think factors into why things happen. Our first factor in the why now is the sensitivity of the public to healthcare costs in general. And I also saw a study about this, I don't think it was Gallup or something, where they just asked in general, like not healthcare specific, just in general, what are you concerned about, Americans? Number one was the economy and number two was healthcare costs which is exactly what you're saying, that across the country, just given the amount of medical debt, just given the amount that premiums go up every year, people are starting to realize how much healthcare is costing everyone across the country. Just that general knowledge, people are waking up to it. Yeah, Gallup, Kaiser Family Foundation does general polls. It's exactly what you said. So I think there was a backdrop there that drove some of it. Let's start ticking through maybe some of the other levers. What would you consider your second one? The drug market, and by that I mean the patenting process to bring a drug to market, FDA approval, how the PBMs, wholesalers, and pharmacies work into this, how the manufacturers go about setting their prices. All of that is a very complex market. And I think in previous iterations, pharma owned a lot of that information and maybe even owned it pretty exclusively. One thing that was different this time, the research that came out of non-pharma sources, and by and large, I mean out of academic, and that could be economists, medical researchers, physician researchers, a lot of research came along that either directly contradicted points that pharma was making or alternatively made the argument much more subtle, particularly around innovation, which we'll get to it at some point in this conversation. Let me give you a couple of examples of how I think the evidence shifted and you know made the debate a lot more two-sided instead of one-sided, although I'm not sure that's the best choice of, of words. For example, the documentation of what other countries were paying 
for drugs. Americans pay three times what other countries pay for drugs became much more prominent in the debate this time around. And all kinds of actors were producing that information. John Hopkins, Harvard, Rand, all kinds of researchers were demonstrating and showing that difference. Pharma's argument was always, well, all these dollars are for R&D, and we need all these dollars for R&D. Now, that market is complex. A lot of it is driven through venture capital. But there was just this notion of there is much more revenue than is going into research and development. The industry, by and large, outperformed the market on its returns. There were facts like, you know, there's going to be $12 trillion in revenue that the industry is going to pull in over the next 10 years. And this argument of like, well, every dollar is headed into R&D, and that's an overstatement, but the, the argument was we need all of this for R&D. There were real questions about whether all of the dollars were needed and or used for R&D. I also think that there were things like this where there were prevailing statistics on how much it costs to bring a drug to market. That research was based on proprietary data that people had a hard time checking. Other people independently started to put together estimates. In this case, I'm thinking of Johns Hopkins. And we're showing that bringing, and this varies, of course, by the type of drug and how big the population is, but that the estimates of how much it costs to bring a drug to market seemed to be overstated based on what pharma sources were saying. I think there were other factors like how much the federal government through NIH was contributing to patents. And there was research that showed, and I forget the specifics here, but over some five or six year period, virtually all of the patents that had been approved during that period involved some kind of NIH funding or innovation. And then there was a fair amount of research that showed the industry was engaged in anti-competitive activities, building patent thickets, making pay-for-delay types of deals, keeping your competitors off the market, making deals in Europe to cut prices or to allow competitors to come on, but not allowing those kinds of arrangements in the U.S. I think maybe the second lever that we're, we're talking about here, the first lever being the sensitivity of the public, the second lever might be, you know, the sensitivity of maybe policymakers yeah, to, to the lobbying points that pharma has made in the past, which were very difficult to double check. So everyone just sort of maybe believed them on face value. As you said, Johns Hopkins did, did studies, et cetera, about exactly how much it costs to actually bring a drug to market, as well as how much pharma is actually spending. So the conversation now has a benchmark at a minimum. Then just this whole thing around how much other countries are paying for drugs. I mean, that has been its own news cycle. So it's not just policymakers and academicians. It's pretty much voters across the country are well aware of the fact that other countries are paying so much less. And it's sort of an embarrassment in a way to policymakers here if everybody else is paying so much less. So that sort of happened, which I also could see could be an influence here and sensitize policymakers. What's going on in the stock market? Again, you can just look at that. There was stock buybacks. There was all kinds of stuff, which certainly wasn't R&D as well. And then lastly, the NIH that you mentioned, again, I have never seen as much. I mean, granted, this is sort of industry press, but 
at least once a week, you hear somebody talking about how much the NIH contributed to someone's patent, right? And it's just like, okay, so the government's paying for whatever percentage of the research that contributed to the patent and we're paying this much. You no, know, like you hear this incredulity, which seems to be more consistently than I've ever seen in the past bubbling up. I agree with what you've said. So let's talk about number three. What I want to talk about for a second is innovation. And this is related to the R&D argument. So the industry has argued, I want to be very clear, there is truth to this argument. And I do not reject it out of hand. And I also want to say, you could take so much out of the drug market that you could truly stunt innovation. I don't think this bill comes anywhere close to that. But I do want to acknowledge that there is a trade-off. If you limit profits, you can end up limiting innovation. And there's a couple of points that I would make here on this, which I think were different in this debate than I've seen them in the past. First of all, there was some research done, the lead author was Dranoff is his name, that in a sense took the counterfactual. The setup that I said just a second ago is, if you remove a dollar, you threaten innovation. The counterfactual would be, if you give them a dollar, then you'll get innovation. And what these researchers did is they looked at the impact of the new Part D program, the drug program in Medicare, and said, this is a large infusion of revenue for the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, it's currently running in the $100 billion range. When the research was done, I don't recall the net number. But the argument was new dollars. And what they found, which they did not expect to find, is that the overwhelming majority of drugs that were brought to market were Me Too drugs rather than first-in-class or breakthrough types of drugs. What was really important about that, and this began to thread its way through the debate, you even see it in the footnotes of the CBO, Congressional Budget Office's scoring tables, this distinction between more drugs versus innovative drugs. And that had all been just lumped together in the past of like, if you take a dollar from me, this is pharma speaking, you won't get innovation. But there was this more subtlety of like, we may not get more drugs, but will we lose new drugs? That's one thought. And then the second thought is the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, was doing its estimates of the bill. And for example, they have estimated that this legislation will result in two fewer drugs over the next 10 years. And in their footnote, they say, we can't tell you, I, I, I don't know what the exact language is, but fundamentally they're saying, and we can't tell you whether those are Me Too drugs or true innovation. So I think a real important element to this, because this went right to the heart of their argument, was you're going to lose innovation. And the, the return was, are we or are we going to lose Me Too drugs? So dipping our toe into the number three area here, which again, it sounds like is a greater sophistication amongst policymakers and thought leaders relative to some of the pharma talking points. This one being, well, if you do this, you're going to stifle innovation, kind of summarizing the, the point that you just made here. You have to take a look at what we're actually getting. Like innovation in and of itself is, is, is nothing, right? Like what you're after here is what are the improvements in patient lives? And, and if we layer that into the conversation, then it becomes much more of a conversation and a little bit less than a blanket statement. 
Precisely. If pharma is arguing, and again, they're calling it innovation, in many instances, it's just more drugs, but there is true innovation in there too. I don't want to take that away. But they're saying if you reduce these dollars, innovation will evaporate. But the other thing that's happening right now is if you look at polling from Kaiser Family Foundation, for example, something like 29, 30% of Americans either don't fill their prescriptions or ration them. And the other subtlety that got introduced into the argument, although I don't think it's subtle at all, but variation in the argument is, well, if innovation is important, then why aren't these 30% allowed to get access to the current innovations, much less a future innovation? And so what also I think came out in the debate more this time was this trade-off that it was always like, well, there's going to be an innovation in the future. And there was an, another response that said, okay, what about the 30% who can't get access to today's innovation? Shouldn't we strike a balance that brings more of those people into the current innovations? And particularly if a lot of these future innovations are going to be me too's, maybe it's important that people get access to drugs now. So the two points I'm trying to make on innovation are, A, the subtlety of what innovation meant, more versus new, and also the balance between what about generations who need access now versus future generations. And those points, I think, had just not entered as clearly in past debates. Well, so let's make that its own separate number and call it number four. Number three was called the subtlety in the more versus new. We could call this the subtlety in the future versus now. Sure. And it sounds like the pharma's focus has always been, but in the future, consider. And now the debate has, again, become slightly more sophisticated to include, yeah, but what about what's happening right now? I don't want to mess up your numbering system here. And this may also harken back to the general sensitivity that we started out. I think of people like Peter Bach, who is an oncologist, researcher. He's trying to treat his patients and, and treat their cancer. He's seen new cancer drugs that launch with very high prices, but are marginal differences between that and existing drugs and starts asking questions about like, I want to treat my patients for their illness, but I also want to be sensitive to the financial toxicity of what I'm prescribing for my patients and became very outspoken about how drugs were being priced and whether they were really incremental innovations worth paying that price for. And so for example, there's some number like 40% of families who experience cancer within two years have exhausted their financial resources. And I also think there were, not widespread, but there were members of the medical community who started to raise issues about the patient's lack of, this is back to the access point, the patient's lack of access to current innovation and feeling somewhat complicit in helping the patient with their medical concerns but then hurting the patient financially. And I think that was a bit different this time around. And people like Peter Bach and Aaron Kesselheim, both physicians, among other things, were very strong voices on that. And I don't feel like that was as present in the past. Yeah, I mean, I haven't heard the term financial toxicity as often as I have heard it in the past 
few years and just the real understanding that financial toxicity, I've said it on this podcast 400,000 times, that financial toxicity is clinical toxicity. And that is inarguable at this juncture. So we have covered four levers, reasons, factors, and the why now question. What would you say the fifth one might be? As the landscape was shifting, pharma didn't shift with it. They continued to engage in in practices and the like that felt very tone deaf. So, you know, you had the Pharma Bro incident, you had the EpiPen price increase, you had launches of certain drugs that were very high priced, things that you've already mentioned, like stock buybacks and CEO salaries and statements in the press, like I have a moral obligation to raise prices. Whereas I sort of felt like the information landscape was shifting, pharma's tactics and posture and arguments didn't shift along with it. And I think that had more of an impact this time around. And when you went out and you poll voters, the voters were way ahead of the Congress. They wanted aggressive change. And when you pressure test those positions, because it's always easy for people to say, yeah, I don't want to spend as much on drugs. You know, you would go, you would see pollsters go through things like, well, pharma's argument is if you take the spending down, you're not going to get innovative drugs. And pressure testing that, the voters were saying, nonetheless, I want action on this. And I think the other difference is, is that while I don't want to understate it, pharma is a very powerful lobby, but there was also evidence that voters would not punish the politicians for taking these actions. And that may or may not have been different in the past. So it sounds like number five is kind of like old pharma talking points recycled and within a new information landscape. So not adapting, not being sensitive to the fact that the tectonic plates were were changing under them relative to public knowledge, relative to just we are now at the breaking point from a financial standpoint, your average American, and continuing with these lobbying points and arguments and PR campaigns that were super effective for years. I mean, you can kind of understand why it happens because if it worked last year, you sort of assume it's going to work this year, but then suddenly it doesn't. Yes, I think you, you have captured that well. And maybe this time, just for some reason, it just seemed to be more present in everybody's news feed that, you know, stock buybacks, look at the salaries of this CEO. This CEO said this. And things like EpiPen, where you're talking about parents who have to buy these things to send their kids to school. I mean, that that got out there and that really had an effect. But what you said, yes. So that would be number five, just the the changing information landscape that just got out ahead of pharma's lobbying and PR. What's number six here? Well, the voter point, I think that dynamic, I mean, there were very strong percentages of support, both Republican, independent, and Democratic voters that were basically the voters were in front of the Congress. They wanted more aggressive action. And the Congress, you know, I think because of the influence of pharma, was slow to come along and in the past wouldn't come along. But this time, my sense is as politicians could look at polling and say, I will not be punished if I do something here. 
or they would be punished by the voters if they choose not to do something that all the voters want. That, that was also true in some of the polling. It would say, would your vote be influenced on a Congress person's stand on drugs, like those kinds of questions? And there were very high percentages of yes. Congress people then found themselves in a situation where they're realizing that if they do not do this, there could be problems in the polls. Obviously, it's a balance because the pharma lobby is giving money, as that's the point of a lobby. But suddenly the balance shifted. I think the balance did shift. And and I think you've, once again, zeroed right in on it. It's like, is it a dollar or a vote? Those are the two things that the Congress cares about, right? And I just think that the voters' mood gave more running room to Congress Congress persons who did want to do something about the drug prices, where in the past, if you had done anything, you would have been driven out of office largely because of pharma's actions. Okay, so we talked about the six why now, the six levers. Do we have a number seven, potentially? Pharma did not have exclusive control over the patient's voice. So the fact is, is overwhelmingly, patient groups are taking money from pharma, and often they never go to pharma and say, you know, I think you're asking too much for this drug. They go to the government or they go to the employer or and say, you should just pay this price. And they make it about coverage and paying whatever price is asked instead of saying, maybe the manufacturer set the price too high. And this time around, there were a couple of patient organizations that decidedly did not take pharma money and were highly effective. And of course, patients telling their stories about how they cannot afford their drugs or they had to mortgage their house had a lot to do with the shift in information. And there's the technical stuff that I went through, but I think it's very important that there were patient voices saying, I cannot afford this. I have to sell my house to get access to this drug. And I think that was incredibly important. Patients themselves are becoming a little bit more sophisticated relative to the impact of this higher pricing. I was on a call maybe two years ago. The call was a patient kind of talking about how she had to dip into her 401k to pay the out-of-pocket for some drug that her child needed, which is a horrible place to be in. A question got raised, well, why don't, aren't we going after the pharma company and trying to get them to lower the price that your employer, this is again, we're talking about Medicare here, and this is an employer example. Why isn't pharma part of the price equation here? And she, this patient clapped back and she was just like, look, pharma's giving me the drug. This is my employer's problem. My employer should just pay more. It was a very unnuanced reply. I think that really highlights, though, the conflict that a lot of patients have. I just read a study that came out this morning that showed that little kids with leukemia have far better outcomes and life expectancies than teenagers with leukemia, right? Like there are advancements that matter here that pharma can get credit for. On the flip side, in the past, I think people were just blaming their employer, for example, or blaming Medicare when there was significant out of pockets and maybe not quite appreciating that if everybody's premiums go up because of the cost, then it still is out of pocket. Once that Pandora's box starts to open up, then like this is not black or white. As you said, there's lots of shades of gray here. Yeah, it is a very natural place for a patient to say, this drug was developed by a company. It saved my life. It saved my kid's life. Whatever, you know, the most 
important outcome you could possibly want to articulate. But then I think the subtlety, and it's we talked about this at a macro level a little bit back earlier, but then it starts to become, but I can't afford it. And then that is what moves off into, well, why is that? And it could be that, you know, the insurer is doing something, the PBM is doing something. But this time around, people also very explicitly said, well, you know, there is a manufacturer involved in this too. And I, I want to be clear, I'm not absolving insurers and PBMs. There are practices there that are highly problematic. But used to be that that was the only focus of, of the conversation. You are absolutely correct that I could get a break on the, the out of pocket, but it means my premium goes up. And in the employer market, it means your wages go down. And so I think those kinds of trade-offs became much clearer to the patient population, which is what you were saying. So just reviewing real quick here, seven things are, number one, sensitivity of the public to just healthcare costs in general. Number two, sensitivity of policymakers to pharma's R&D claims and the unsponsored information, unsponsored by industry information coming out that tempers some of those claims. Number three, sensitivity that a Me Too drug is not the same as breakthrough innovation. Number four, sensitivity of innovation in the future versus people who can't get access to drugs now. Why should they think that they're going to have access to future drugs at this rate? Number five, the landscape shifted. Pharma talking points did not, thus the, in air quotes, tone deaf label. Number six, voters looking for this. They wanted aggressive action and Congress people responding. And then number seven, patient voices becoming more sophisticated. Is there anything that we neglected to talk about here that you want to add? I want to be clear. I do think the drug manufacturer should recover their R&D. And I think it is fair for them to make some profit off of the drug. What I think is problematic here is thinking about that equation from a societal point of view, how much is the taxpayer already put in through NIH, and then also the whole sets of practices in which just to be very direct and very pointed about this, the industry would largely you know, like to just stick with the patents that they have. And the evidence I bring to that is all of the work that they do in the patent space and the pay for delay and those types of tactics where they're trying to keep competitors off the market. And of course, it's competition that ultimately drives innovation. So I think there's also a little bit of talking out of both sides of their mouth. We want innovation and then engaging in a ton of activities that are clearly anti-competitive. It's worth saying that there's a whole other part of this, the patent process, the FDA approval process, that we probably haven't touched on, and the role of insurers and PBMs that are also part of the whole ecosystem. But I think the manufacturer's role in this particular debate came forward more than it had in the past. Because I'm sure anyone from pharma listening to this is going to be highly frustrated. I want to be very clear. I do think that there is an innovation payment trade-off and that you know we need to have incentives for people to take on innovation. I also don't think the healthcare spending problem is purely a drug problem. Even in the drug market, there are other actors, PBMs, insurers, and of course, hospitals, which have, are highly consolidated and charging very high prices in the commercial sector. There, it is not just a drug problem, but this podcast was really about the drug stuff, which is why I'm focused on it. 
this is a, an exquisitely complicated market, and it is hard for a researcher to understand, much less a civilian. But that level of sophistication is starting to get into the, the public domain. So do you want to just talk a little bit about Arnold Ventures and your work there? Yeah, and I won't go on long here. The purpose of my particular portfolio, and Arnold Ventures does other things, you know, criminal justice, education, gun violence, things like that. My particular portfolio is about healthcare spending. And our objective here is to preserve access and innovation, but to try and identify those dollars that are not necessarily improving access or improving medical care. Drug prices are part of it, but hospital prices are part of it, and I have other components of my agenda. We are a philanthropy. We give money. We give grants. An important point I want to get across here is none of my comments are informed by financial interest. It's a philanthropy. Laura and John Arnold are spending their money on things like research, developing policy, and then communicating those ideas at the federal and state level to policymakers so that we can have an effective change. Mark Miller, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.